So welcome to the Capital Link Shipping Podcast Series. I'm Nicholas Bornozis, President of Capital Link. The purpose of the podcast is to create more awareness and visibility for the global fuel oil bankering sector. As such, the podcast aims to be both educational and informative. Today we have with us Jonathan McIlroy, who is the president of the New York listed Aegean Marine Petroleum Network. We will discuss trends and developments in the fuel oil bankering sector, the marine fuel sector, and we will also, of course, focus on Aegean. So, Jonathan, welcome to our podcast. I would like to mention uh, to, for everyone's knowledge that um, Jonathan became president of Aegean in July of this year, but he has been with the company since the beginning of 2016. Jonathan has a 25-year-long career in this business. Aegean Marine Petroleum is the world leader in the physical supply and marketing of marine fuel and lubricants, serving over 30 markets worldwide. So, Jonathan, let's begin by asking you for a description of the marine fuel, of the fuel oil and bankering business. What is this business all about? What are the main functions that Aegean performs? And who are your main clients? And, and what do you need in terms of operational infrastructure uh, to be in this business? Do you need storage facilities, bankering vessels, barges, uh, a global network? So, okay. Okay, look, I'm... Um, uh... I mean, I think that a good analogy for the industry, uh, which is a kind of simplistic analogy for it, is that effectively we operate a gigantic gas station for international shipping worldwide. Uh, you know, we organize the delivery of a range of fuels um, in ports worldwide, um, which can be from the largest scale deliveries, which can be five to 6,000 tons of fuel oil, where we use a small tanker to go alongside the uh, the commercial vessel in a main hub port like Rotterdam, right down to very small deliveries, uh, which can be as small as 25 tons by a road truck wagon in a local port in a developing uh, port in a in a kind of you know uh, in a third world economy. So I mean that that's the, the, the sheer scope of the business and and the, the nature of it um, and. The business is uh, basically one where we keep global shipping running worldwide. And I think that it's interesting for people to keep in mind that uh, every kind of commodity that you can imagine that you, uh, that you use in your daily life, between 75 to 90% of those goods are carried by sea. Uh, and that can be everything from the oil or the coal, which is firing you know, uh, electricity plants, which keep your electricity grid going, through to consumer electronics, which are shipped from China by container to, uh, you know, worldwide markets, be they in New York, London, Paris, Tokyo, and so on. So we are the, the global providers of the energy that keeps shipping, which is the lifeblood of the global economy, moving. Um, from a genes perspective, we're, like you mentioned, we're the leading independent physical supplier uh, active at the moment, and we truly are a global uh, operation. You know, we span everywhere from Singapore to Rotterdam, uh, from Hamburg to Rio de Janeiro. And as you mentioned, we're present in 30 countries. We deliver in more than 90 locations, and uh, we deal with a global clientele of ship owners and ship operators uh, who are active worldwide. And I think that uh, to be a leader uh, in that sector, as you mentioned, what what assets do you need? Uh, I think primarily, and it is important to emphasize, 
you need human expertise in terms of oil and shipping. Uh, and I think, you know, clearly we have a, a, a team of uh, industry professionals here that are working uh, on a worldwide basis uh, to, to give us the understanding that we need of the oil industry, the shipping industry, and, and, and our role within it. And in addition to that, that has to be backed up by top-class assets and in forms of, you know, uh, oil tankers, bunker delivery barges, uh, storage facilities. Uh, and uh, we have that network of uh, assets backed by a global network of offices, uh, and we consider that to be an essential part of our offering as a, as a leading global physical supplier. Well, Jonathan, as you mentioned, uh, shipping is indeed the artery of the global economy and trade. And it is a global business, and I think a lot of people may not realize exactly how much of the global cargo is carried on ships. I think a lot of people are familiar with trains and trucks and, uh, uh, you know, airlines because they, they see them more often. Uh, and they may not be familiar exactly with the, um, the vast percentage of global trade carried on ships. But anyway, shipping is a global business and ships pick up and deliver cargoes everywhere. So they need fuel to move around and you provide the fuel. Are there any major markets, any major hubs for the global banking business? And do you have to be present in every market to service your clients? I would expect in some markets you have your own presence. In other markets, you work through other partners or agents. How exactly does it work? Yeah, I mean, as mentioned, I mean, it, it, it's a global market. Um, but like any global market, it has a number of key uh, centers, uh, with hub hub regions where um, a higher percentage of the business is, is localized. And uh, I think that in terms of the, the scale of the industry, uh, the numbers vary, but I think that a safe estimate is to say that around 280 million tons of oil is delivered to global shipping every year to keep the ships moving. Okay, So uh, you're looking at in excess of 20, heading towards 25 million tons of oil per month. Uh, delivered worldwide. Now, Singapore is the unquestioned number one in terms of uh, the port where the largest amount of oil is delivered. Uh, and clearly, Singapore geographically has an excellent location, uh, you know, as a as a as a point uh, on the map for tonnage, which is going to and fro the Far East into into the you know the global factory these days is China. But, you know, traditionally, you know, Japan, Korea, China, these are major industrial economies which are uh, taking uh, unprocessed commodities uh, on a worldwide basis and, and turning them into finished goods. And Singapore has an excellent geographical location to support global shipping transiting east. Singapore has a market volume, I would say, of 44 to 45 million tons per year, which means it's roughly 15 to 16 percent of the entire global demand for marine fuel. Uh, secondarily to Singapore, you have the complex of ports in Northwest Europe, uh, which stretch from Antwerp to Amsterdam, Rotterdam. And in the industry, we call that the ARA market, Antwerp, Rotterdam, Amsterdam. And the complex of ports in that region, they aggregate about 20 million tons. So you're looking at about 7 to 8% in those ports uh, of global demand. And then thirdly, the most, the, uh, another significant market is the, uh, the market at, uh, Pujaira in the Middle East, uh, which, uh, as you know, is, is clearly a key market for oil export trade. 
And the total delivered market in that area would be around 11, 12 million tons, about a million tons of fuel per month. So just looking at those three areas, you're looking at around 25% of global demand in three areas. Now, with regards to being present, Aegean is present in all uh, global markets, all key global markets. Um, whereas, you know, many of our competitors are regional by nature or have partial coverage. Um, Aegean, uh, we have uh, full global coverage and we're present in all of those markets that I've just mentioned. And uh, so I think that in, in terms of having the, the, the global presence, we consider it to be important to be in those areas and to give uh, a full service uh, to customers, to, to shipping companies which are active in those areas. And uh, we maintain our own vessels, our own storage. Uh, we have our own cargo buying, uh, and that's how we support the business there. Now, in addition to that, I mean, there are many other significant ports. For example, the ports of the U.S. eastern coast and western coast, like New York, Baltimore, uh, like Los Angeles, Long Beach. Or in the Mediterranean, you have important uh, areas like Gibraltar uh, and the complex of ports there. And Aegean is similarly a physical supplier in these areas with its own barges, its own cargo, and so on. And again, we're present. But, you know, we can't be everywhere. And uh, there are certain niche markets or certain, um, you know, uh, ports where Aegean as yet doesn't have a direct footprint. And as you mentioned, where we are not present, we work on a cooperative and collaborative basis with other suppliers um, to support our customers as and when they have demand in those regions. Well, exactly. I guess uh, working through all those relationships gives you a global footprint and you can uh, service your clients uh, on a global basis. Indeed, indeed. So I understand very clearly the function of the physical supplier where you deliver fuel to your client's vessels. But besides that, the marine fuel business also involves bunker trading, and uh, I understand that a very important factor in the whole business is the extension of credit. So how important are these functions for the industry and for Aegean specifically? Okay. Uh, Trading is an important and uh, necessary corollary uh, to the physical supply network. And it provides uh, forms of uh, arbitrage and liquidity to ship owners and ship operators worldwide. And, um, you know, there are a number of uh, physical suppliers by their very nature are our conservative entities with regards to the terms of business that they will deal with and the levels of credit that they will extend to their counterparty. And so the trading uh, community uh, provides a, a much needed interface um, in terms of global shipping, particularly, like I say, for ship owners and ship operators who may not have the credit standing uh, to be direct to a physical supplier or may not have adequate um credit facilities with a physical supplier in order to keep their fleet moving. And uh, a lot of the time they're going to trading organizations and the trading organizations are able, uh, you know, with greater flexibility uh, to be able to, you know, to provide uh, these ship owners and ship operators with the credit they need uh, to keep, you know, to, to keep the ships fueled and keep the ships running. Uh, I mean, another part of what the trading community uh, will do is they because they are not um, investing in assets, because they don't control storage, they, they haven't invested in a tanker fleet and so on, uh, their focus in the business is, is entirely on, on commercial aspects of the business, and they have flexibility with regards to the terms of business that they will deal with people under, 
and that particularly comes down to something which has been important in shipping since 2008 particularly and the downturn in shipping is that the trading the trading uh, companies are quite often able to give extended terms of credit whereas the normal uh, industry uh, standard is 30 day terms the trading uh, companies are able to extend 45 day terms 60 day terms 90 day terms and in some rare examples even longer terms than that um so ultimately, I think that the function of the trading uh, organizations um, is something which is very important uh, for the ship owning and ship operating uh, community where you're talking about companies which don't have sufficient access to credit. Uh, on the other side, from the supply perspective, the trading community offers a, uh, a useful means. Um, they centralize and aggregate volume from those disparate, those disparate customers that we're not direct to, and they bring it to us from a reliable counterparty that we feel confident in dealing with and who we know will be able to pay the bills on time. So I think that that's a, a slot that the trading companies fall into, and I think that, uh, you know, that uh, there's, there's always going to be room in the structure of the business for the trading companies um, as a useful uh, you know, addition uh, to the role which is provided by the physical supplier. But at, the end, at the end of the day, the physical supplier is the one that delivers the fuel to the vessel. The physical supplier, I mean, you know, the, 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 the bedrock of the industry uh, is the physical supplier. You know, the physical supplier has the oil, the means of storage of the oil, the means of delivery of the oil. We are, we are an asset-intensive uh, side of the industry, and, uh, you know, we, we are where the value lies in the logistical chain. And, uh, and, and that level of investment, that level of commitment, um, is by, by, you know, by, by its very nature, one of the reasons why we have to be conservative, um, with regards to who we deal with. And I think that you will find that across the industry on a global level, physical suppliers are categorically more conservative when it comes to the extension of credit lines uh, and, uh, and, the, and the terms of business that we're prepared to deal under. Uh, the trading companies, because they're basically footloose with regards to the balance sheet, uh, they're able to uh, have a degree of flexibility that we don't desire to have. And I think it is their, their selling point is the, is the ability to step in, like I say, on credit lines to people who... Uh, may look like an exotic or an elevated credit risk from a physical supply perspective, uh, or to enter into contractual terms of business that a physical supplier will not accept, and ultimately to extend much longer terms of business than a physical supplier will will uh, permit. You know, like I say, the 60-day terms, 90-day terms to customers yeah. who, because they're because they're stretching out their cash flow because of the, the, the you know, the, the very challenging nature of the shipping environment in key shipping segments, uh, you know, uh, we as the physical, we're going direct to the cargo source. We're going direct to oil majors, national oil companies, uh, the major commodity traders, and we're purchasing oil um, against LCs, um, against short terms of business. And, and so in, in that sense, um, our liquidity is committed to assets and oil purchasing and uh, our room to step into these uh, rather exotic terms of business with these very extended um, open credit, 
periods of payment isn't something that we're interested in participating in, um, and it's a part of the business that we are happy to delegate to the trading companies. So it's asset-intensive and working capital-intensive. Indeed, on the physical supply side of things, very much so. So now, ships need bunker fuel to move no matter what are the freight rates that the ships can earn themselves. Yes. Yet the level of the freight rates, you know, how profitable are the freight rates for ships, have an impact on the bunkering business itself. Mm-hmm. So how does this work? Uh, and if we take it a step further, what are the major factors that contribute to what we have experienced to be declining margins on the physical bankers and banker trading? Yes. I mean, I think uh, clearly it's, uh, it will be no secret to most of your listeners that from the period at which the commodity super cycle ended uh, in uh, third quarter, fourth quarter 2008, um, the uh, precipitous collapse in certain key shipping segments uh, from that period onward, uh, particularly dry bulk and, and secondarily the tanker sector and then ultimately the liner industry uh, by default. Uh, that uh, the shipping markets have been categorized for really uh, almost the past 10 years uh, by dealing with very challenging markets uh, and markets in which even periods of recovery have been sporadic, largely short-term, and relatively anemic in nature. So, as it were, most of the client body, most of the, the, you know, the, the audience which is buying fuel has been uh, operating uh, under duress uh, uh, since 2008, beginning of 2009. And most of the buying pattern uh, from the ship-owning and ship-operating community has been focused on absolute cost control, um, optimizing buying decisions, uh, you know, keeping commitments that, um, you know, are capital-intensive to a minimum in order to, like I say, protect cash flows, keep companies alive, uh, and, and, and ultimately keep whatever value they have in their business. And this has been um, hand-in-hand with the fact that in the period from 2005 to 2008, during the super cycle and the period when, frankly, everyone in commodities and shipping was having a good time and able to make money, uh, the incremental cost of bunker fuel as an operational expense for an owner or an operator um, climbed significantly. And, you know, at at the height of the market, uh, you had bunker fuel costs equivalent to, they may have been at one stage in history, 17-18% of the operating cost of a vessel, but at that high point, they were as much as between 45-52% and of the operating cost of a vessel. So it became a much more significant cost element for a cost-conscious fleet manager. And the pressure on that has not abated much since 2008-2009. So the ship owning and operating community has absolutely focused with laser focus um, on bunker buying as a significant cost element. And I think that you have seen in the past 9-10 years um, increased sophistication in terms of the buying pattern um, and increased attention to fielding inquiries, fielding buying out to the maximum number of commercially uh, sensible parties that they can approach in order to squeeze price to the absolute minimum. And I think that everyone is focused on the, on, on the last nickel and dime with regards to where they're buying fuel at the moment. Uh, that has clearly had an impact, um, you know, in terms of 
in terms of the industry because it's it's created a much more, um, uh, like I said, absolutely cost-conscious, cost-focused uh, client market. Um, and I think that those efficiencies in terms of the uh, the ways in which these these buying decisions are managed, this is now kind of built into the DNA of these companies. And even if there is a market, a sustained and, and, and significant market recovery in shipping markets, this will continue to be the pattern for a successful ship operator going forward because, simply speaking, it's the best way of retaining value uh, within the company, protecting profitability and maximizing cash flow. So from that side of things, I think that the, the development in the freight market and, and the shipping markets have had a significant impact. Um, and then on the other side, clearly, uh, you know, other key factors for us, uh, the market is uh, within the physical supply community and the, the, the back-to-back trading uh, segment of the industry. The market is intensely uh, competitive. Uh, we have uh, increased levels of competition. Uh, there is, um, you know, a, an intense uh, level of uh, intercompany competition. Uh, the weak uh, oil markets, uh, particularly since the end of 2014 onwards, and the rather bearish outlook on oil markets, combined with relatively protracted periods where the markets have lacked interesting degrees of volatility, this has also fed into adding pressure uh, into the uh, the bunker market. Um, it, it, it put real pressure on margins. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, that those factors have all played a major part um, in the current environment. That's very interesting. And uh, if, I, if I can take it to a, a little bit of a different direction, looking ahead now, um, besides all those channels that you mentioned, I think another key question relates to the regulatory requirements for lower sulfur emissions by 2020. And to meet those requirements, there are new technologies that ships can implement, which may actually affect their profitability further. And at the same time, we are talking about new alternative fuels like LNG and LPG and so on, fuels that will help uh, ships meet those lower emission requirements. So, how will these uh, regulatory requirements um, impact the shipping industry? And by extension, uh, how do you think they may have an impact on the uh, marine fuel industry? Mm. I think uh, without doubt, uh, most people uh, with a, an understanding of the industry, uh, and, and, and by extension, I mean in terms of the shipping industry the, uh, and the oil market in, in, in terms of the bunker market, uh, they, they recognize that the regulatory changes which are going to come from the beginning of 2020, um, they represent a seismic shift, uh, and I think that it will be uh, a genuinely significant uh, development which will uh, it will cascade a number of, uh, of impacts into the market. It, it will have significant, it will drive significant change. Now, clearly, uh, against that backdrop, there will be um, immediate and uh, easily identifiable short-term factors, and then from that, I think we, you know, you will see progressively mid-term factors and long-term factors which drive the development of the industry. Some of which are more difficult to chart um, and predict at this period in time. Uh, now, I'm sure your listeners are aware that there has been an intense debate 
uh, in shipping and the uh, refining industry, in the bunker industry, and with regulators uh, since 2014-2015, when it really became apparent that 2020 was a fixed point in time, it was going to happen, there's unlikely to be slippage, uh, and that uh, you know people really got to get prepared for it. And uh, as, as I said, I think that there has been a you know um, a real debate around it, and the debate focuses in on the key points that you've, uh, that you've mentioned. I mean, it's uh, what kind of fuels your vessel is going to burn, uh, how long, um, you know, what are the prospects for uh, the the mix of fuels uh, in terms of the developmental uh, side of things. Uh, what uh, sulfur abatement technologies people are going to use. Most of that, of course, is focused on scrubber technology. And ultimately, what, you know, what is the mid- to long-term prospect for alternative fuel sources which are emissions-compliant, uh, LNG, LPG clearly being the, the lead runners on that, and, uh, and further out, you know, people talking about other alternatives, for example, like battery, you know, um, power cell battery technology and that kind of thing. Now, as I mentioned, I think that the immediate um, and the short term uh, is starting to get uh, a bit of clarity around it at the moment. And it seems that the drift in the industry is that most people recognize that uh, from early 2020, most uh, of the fuel burned will be uh, compliant fuel, uh, which will be largely distillate-based, you know, so a shift to uh, fuels which have... 84, 85%, you know, distillate content, and therefore come within the the sulfur cap as a result of that. Uh, uh, you know, and I think that clearly uh, listeners will have seen uh, discussion with leading companies like AP Muller and Lauritsen and so on, which at this point, at this point in time, seem from their side of things to have discounted their general uh, uh, decision to embrace things like scrubbers. They have ruled that out. And they seem to be focused on uh, making sure that in their supply chain, they're dealing with suppliers who will have compliant distillate-based fuels 1st of January 2020 onwards. Now, I mean, clearly in parallel to that, there's a discussion about how the refining industry is gearing itself up to meet the levels of demand and also with regards to what the refining industry and, and the oil segment um, is capable of achieving in terms of, uh, of delivering ultra-low sulfur, uh, desulfurized fuel oils, um, very, you know, very similar to the fuel oils which are currently burned, um, and then laterally moving into longer-term developmental issues like the, the adoption of LNG and LPG um, as an alternative uh, to, to oil-based propulsion. Uh, you know, and from, from my reading of that at the moment, outside of... Certain segments, uh, for example, Baltic railroads or, or ferry services or, or very specific routes um, in countries where there is a very strong ecological agenda, I think that most of the interesting discussion with regards to a general move to studying LNG, LPG, has come from the liner industry where you have, for example, United Arab Shipping Company, which has had a series of dual engine vessels which have LNG-capable engines already installed, and the debate with CMA, which has been looking at new new buildings in Korea, and should they take uh, vessels which have scrubbers built in, or should they effectively, you know, up the spec and look at going for a dual engine with LNG engines in parallel to traditional engines. 
So I think that the LNG LPG element of the debate, it's looking, it's looking, like I say, midterm, long term. It's out there. It's realistic. But I still think that you're looking at a time frame of 10 to 15 years before you're looking at any significant mainstream adoption of that fuel as a technology that will power shipping. So, Adrian now, you know, focusing on Adrian, you have been going through a period of restructuring, you have new leadership, and you have now been executing on a very specific strategy that you have outlined. Can you uh, share with us, I mean, your, your recent earnings uh, announcement um, provided a lot of detail in terms of the strategy and how you have executed on that very successfully so far. But can you share with our listeners the major objectives and highlights of your strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, the objectives will be, you know, relatively familiar, I think, to all listeners. And I mean, clearly, uh, you know, as a publicly listed company, we have, uh, you know, a, a core concern, which is to uh, defend and build the capital interests of our stakeholders, um, in the in the form of our shareholders and to protect the asset base of the company. Um, so we're in a process of of realigning uh, certain uh, certain elements of what we do, with the view to optimizing the use of the asset in the most profitable locations uh, for the company, uh, and with a view to a long term sustainable growth of the company on a profitable basis, um, but on a strategic basis which retains our title as a leading global physical supplier and enhances it, builds upon it. And I think that, uh, you know, there are um, uh, a number of uh, major factors at play which are driving the market. Uh, some of those are long-term and fundamental in nature. Some of them are short-term and driven by market cycle. And it's incumbent on us to analyze the market properly and strategically, uh, in order to position Aegean properly, um, you know, uh, to make sure that we are where we want to be. And I think that as well, clearly, you know, we have on the horizon this significant landmark date of 2020, uh, and we do want to make sure that Aegean is um, ultimately properly prepared and ready to be a leading, uh, you know, source of these compliant fuels which our key customers are going to need from the 1st of January 2020 onwards. I think that that's our focus at the moment. Well, you know, to sum up, I mean, you have been repositioning your assets within your global network. You optimize your presence in the key operating hubs, and, and you see significant cost reduction, and you have been delivering very concretely along those uh, lines. You're also expanding into new markets. Um, looking ahead, uh, what are the opportunities that you see for the sector, for growth opportunities? And also, do you think that there is um, the possibility or the need for more consolidation in this business? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that, um, you know, the, the process that we've engaged in uh, with regards to analyzing the market and, and particularly with a view to identifying new markets and new opportunities, uh, it's a complicated process, clearly, uh, with a, a great number of, of, of uh, let's say, movable parts. And, you know, uh, Eugene is very good at evaluating the competitive landscape in a, in a specific market um, or a region, you know, uh, with several ports and so on, uh, because of the, like I said earlier in the, in the podcast, you know, we have a great resource in terms of deep shipping knowledge uh, and, and, and first-class assets and, and a really expert level of being able to mobilize the logistics to, to get a new station up and running. 
And so I think that one of the things that we're looking at doing is, is having the using that acumen uh, and having the commercial agility to develop new locations which are interesting to shipping, which correspond to the need of the shipping community, uh, reflect trade patterns, and so on. Uh, and I'm confident that for us and for the industry in general, that's where opportunities lie. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, the global shipping network, many positions, um, they're effectively hardwired into the decision-making processes for ship owners, like, for example, Singapore, like Rotterdam, uh, you know, like New York in, in the U.S. on the East Coast, Los Angeles on the West Coast, Panama, Gibraltar, you know, these kinds of bottleneck areas. But in addition to that, because of the changes in trade flows and the developments, um, you know, the the shift in global economic focus east, uh, the sheer expansion in volume in dry commodities which are moving from uh, the U.S. Gulf, Central and South America to the Far East, uh, there have been developments in trade lanes and trade flows which the industry is catching up with. And some of these new locations are going to be the future, you know, positions which are going to be hardwired into the industry 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now. And I think that for, in terms of opportunity, uh, Aegean is really good at recognizing these locations and really good at, uh, like I say, organizing the logistics to give the ship owner, the ship operator, uh, a top-class uh, service in those new areas. And I think that that is certainly for us um, and in the, and like I say, in the lead up to 2020, it's certainly where we see opportunity in the market. Uh, consolidation would certainly help. Uh, and I think that, uh, again, the technical requirements with regards to controlling the logistical chain from refinery through storage through barging to delivery with the customer of fuel, which is compliant with 2020, I think that's going to raise the bar. Uh, in terms of legal requirements, technical requirements, and financial requirements. And it's our optimistic hope that 2020, again, is going to be one of the drivers of consolidation in an industry which will have to raise its game uh, to perform within that compliant environment from 2020 onwards. So, like I said, I think that that also will feed through well for a company in a Aegean's position and help us, uh, you know, add value to you know, the chain that we've invested in. Because like I say, from our perspective, we have the top class assets. Uh, we have, a, an, you know, an excellent storage network. And I think that we have the right talent to benefit from that kind of market and the opportunities that come with it. John, thank you very much. I think we had a very detailed and very insightful discussion. And I, and I thank you for sharing your expertise and your, your insight with us. I think at this point we have reached the end of our discussion, and uh, again I would like to thank um, Jonathan McIlroy, the president of Aegean Marine Petroleum Network, for uh, his uh, insight uh, and for sharing his, his views with us. Uh, closing, uh, you can get more information on the sector and specifically on Aegean by visiting the company's website at www.ampni.com. Uh, you can also uh, access uh, the podcast of Capital Link Shipping, uh, of course, uh, through iTunes uh, under Capital Link Shipping or by going to our website at podcasts.capitallink.com. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening and uh, we'll be with you uh, soon again. Thank you.